Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,256 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing the messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is the 13th of a 25-week message series covering the book of Hebrews. This message is titled, Christ's Covenant, New but Never Obsolete. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. As we continue our extended series through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we saw last week where we compared the Levitical and the Melchizedek priesthood, and we saw that Jesus Christ was established as a perfect and the permanent high priest, our great high priest. And this week we move beyond that high priest to the new covenant that Christ brings to us. The new covenant, we call it the New Testament, just like the old covenant we call the Old Testament. The New Testament, that new covenant, that good news, which is commonly called the gospel. Today's passage is Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 16, and it's on page 1870 of your pew Bible. If you want to follow along as I read the scripture today. Now, the main point of what I am saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary of the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at the sanctuary that is a copy or a shadow of what was in heaven. This is why Moses warned when he said about, was, this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would be, have been sought for another. But God found fault with his people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people Israel and with my people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with my people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors to say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling the covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete is outdated and will soon disappear. Now, Paul and I have been working in the technology industry since 1980. So we've been involved with both business and personal computers nearly from the beginning. But I'm still constantly amazed at the technology that we take granted for today. Everyday devices like my watch, who like Dick Tracy used to talk to people on his watch and telephone, you can make calls and receive calls through your watch now or through our smartphones or tablets or our laptops. They used to seem science fiction to us, 
but now they're reality and we take them for granted. Over the decades, I observed an endless parade of new technology come and go, each advancement growing old and replacing with the newest development. When I first started in computers at Crescent Supply and helped them to install their first computer, we used 8-inch floppy disk. They hold 80,000 pieces of information, and you would say, wow, 80,000 pieces of information on that little thin floppy disk? Well, today we have what's called thumb drives. They're little things. This one I'm currently holding holds 2 billion pieces of information on it. And the only reason it's as small, as large as it is is because we still have fat fingers that we need to be able to manipulate it. Otherwise, it'd be even smaller than this. It's amazing what has been advanced over the last few years. Cassette tapes were replaced by CDs, or by replaced records. CDs replaced those tapes. Digital downloads then replaced CDs. Streaming media is replacing all those digital files that we used to download and store. And it will continue. The same is true with other forms of technology. Think of smart TVs, telephones, self-driving cars, robotic mowers, robotic vacuum cleaners, coffee makers, and a whole host of smart appliances today. The problem with technology, though, is we clamor for the newest gadget and upgrade, and we enjoy being on the cutting edge, but it only lasts a few months. Then we find ourselves carrying outdated and obsolete technology. I'm old enough to remember when color TV was something of amazement for people. It was a hot item. But then we got these big screen TVs that were huge and real thick, big projectors. But then it went to flat screens and plasma. And soon we'll all be wearing augmented or virtual reality as we do our, our glasses. Technology will continue to, to advance and change. Everything seems to become obsolete. Everything artificial, human, or earthly, that is. Anything made out of or dependent on breakable parts, corruptible materials, or changing conditions will eventually break down. They'll deteriorate or they'll become irrelevant. No wonder Christ so wisely put it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, 19. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths will eat them and rust will destroy them and where thieves will break in and steal. Anything subject to change or corruption is not worthy of our everlasting trust. And what's true in the physical realm, surprisingly, is true in the spiritual also. As the author of Hebrew makes the point patently clear in today's chapter, chapter 8 of Hebrews. When he demonstrates that the Mosaic Covenant established under certain conditions for a particular people for a particular time was never meant to last forever, he had a better plan in place. He quotes the Old Testament prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and 30, through 34 in this passage that anticipates the replacement of that Old Covenant with something new, proving to the Jewish readers that the one that had become obsolete was going to be replaced with one that will never pass away. It'd be like we ultimately reach a technology that there's no more advancement from. That is the new covenant, so much better than the old. 
This section ties in beautifully with what we've talked about in the first seven chapters of Hebrews. Last week we read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God, which assures us that whatever the new covenant includes, it is superior to everything that has come before it. As we drill down a bit on verses 1 and 2, summing up is a bullet point of what we've talked about in the first seven chapters. And the author of Hebrews begins chapter 8 with, now the main point of what we are saying is this. He's saying everything I've talked about in these seven chapters is summed up here. We have a great high priest who is greater than the old covenant in verse 1. Our high priest is in the heavens at the right hand of God in verse 1. And then he ministers to us in a true tabernacle made by God and not by man in verse 2. And the phrase, the true tabernacle, is not meant to be contrast something genuine with something that is counterfeit, as if the old earthly tabernacle, which in the Levitical priesthood performed sacrifices, was something false. Rather, the term refers to the reality behind it was a representation of what was yet to come. Now, when Paul and I were on our honeymoons, we were married in 1979, but we got the 1980 calendar. This is just a representation of what we were all those years, nearly 44 years ago. Wasn't she cute? She's grown more beautiful every day since then. But this is just a picture, a representation of what we are as a real person. And that's the same as the representation of the old covenant with its practices was just a picture of what was yet to come. The picture is so much better than the old covenant was. The earthly tabernacle, the earthly priesthood represented that real heavenly tabernacle and that heavenly priesthood. Where did the heavenly tabernacle come from? Well, the author says the Lord himself pitched or set up that tabernacle. And like the earthly realm, the heavenly realm was created by God. Everything was. But whereas the earthly tabernacle, that holy tent of meeting, that they called it, which was originally hosted this Levitical priest in that sacrificial worship, was put up and taken down by human hands, as we're told in Exodus 33, 7, and Joshua chapter 18, verse 1. But the heavenly tabernacle was erected by God himself. As such, the earthly tabernacle was self-evidently a temporal dwelling. It was never meant to last forever. The heavenly tabernacle was meant to be permanent. As we move on to verses 3 through 6, the author further unpacks the distinction between that earthly and the heavenly tabernacles. One was temporal. The other was eternal. One was changing. They had to take it up and set it down, take it down and set it up every time they stopped. The other is changeless. The ironic and Levitical priesthood served as a sphere of a copy of the shadow of the real one yet to come. Now, if you stood out in the sunlight today, you would see your shadow. And that's a picture of what the earthly tabernacle was, is a shadow of that heavenly tabernacle that was yet to come. It was casting the shadow of something more perfect. The author means this quite literally, asserting that Moses commanded the earthly tabernacle to be built as a symbolic representation of the heavenly tabernacle that he saw on that Mount of Sinai. Exodus 25, verse 40 tells us, and it is also reiterated in Acts chapter 7, verse 44. 
The earthly tabernacle was a true representation, but only a model, just like this is a true representation of Paul and I, but it's not us. Did I have it backwards? No, this way? Okay. It was a true representation of us. Just like the pictures that we saw in the children's message was a picture of that true representation of that heavenly tabernacle. Just a shadow is, ca is cast by something of real substance. You can't have a shadow unless you have something of real substance to cast that shadow. The old covenant rituals represented a greater reality that was behind them. Suppose Jesus was serving as a high priest. In that case, he must make an offering of gifts and sacrifices, which we're told in verse 3 of our passage. But these can't be the same as those at the earthly sanctuary were established under Moses. The blood offered of animals. Because Jesus was not a priestly, a priestly earthly ministry. He was established. He would not have been qualified to be a priest on earth because he was from the tribe of Judah and not from the tribe of Levi, as verse 4 tells us. Therefore, he could not offer gifts and sacrifices here on earth because he was not of the tribe of Levi that were prescribed by the law, as verse 4 says. Now we get to the point of the matter, and the matter is resolved in verse 6. But Christ, as our high priest, offers both gifts and sacrifices, it says in verse 3, but not in the earthly tabernacle according to the old covenant law established by Moses. Rather, Jesus is superior to that old one. As the eternal high priest is a heavenly tabernacle, logically, Christ is the new covenant established on better promises in verse 6. Well, verse 6 leads us to verses 7 through 13. In the logic of the argue, author's argument in verse 6 is powerful and compelling. These are the three arguments that he proposes in verse 6. Christ is superior in his person and work because... He's also, he has a ministry superior to that of the old covenant priesthood because, and he is a mediator of the covenant superior to that old covenant because his new covenant was, was established on superior promises. It was something better, something superior to what was. At this point in the argument, however, the final assertion upon which everything rests, it requires some sort of divine biblical defense. The Jewish Christians were who the original audience was written to. They were likely being wooed by the unbelieving Jews who were completely still loyal to their rabbis and their teaching, teachings and fervently dedicated to preserving that Mosaic covenant with its sacrifices and its priesthood. Therefore, any challenge to the system would be a target of criticism and attack. If the author of Hebrew asserted that there was, had been a change in covenants with the coming of the Messiah, and if he stated that the new covenant was superior to that old covenant, then he would need to back that up with some solid scripture in order to prove, prove his point. And this is the nature of biblical covenants. It's described in chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. And we don't have to go very far into the first few pages of the Bible to discover that God deals with his people through covenants. That was his plan all along and his practice all along. Biblical scholars often designated that God-ordained covenants are either conditional, 
meaning they're based on conditions of what we do or do not do, or they were unconditional, which are based on strictly on what God said, indicating the degree of which humans were responsible for keeping part of their de the deal. For example, the promise to Noah, never again to destroy the world with a great flood, was unconditional. God didn't require anything of Noah to keep that promise. He says, I will not destroy the world again with the flood in Genesis 9, verses 9 through 11. But in contrast, the covenant law with the Mosaic law was explicitly conditional because the people of Israel obligated themselves to keep all of the associated, all the commands that received either temporal blessings or temporal curses if they disobeyed the commands. Exodus 24, verse 7. The Abrahamic covenant otherwise was unconditional in that God obligated himself. He says, I will make a great nation through you, Abraham and Sarah. Nothing you need to do, I will create the great nation. However, the particular generations of Abraham's descendants, in order to experience those temporal blessings of the covenant, they had to trust and obey. Deuteronomy 28 and also in Genesis 26 verses 4 and 5. And as we span through the history of God's covenants with humanity after that flood, we see that they are built toward an ultimate fulfillment of Jesus Christ as that new covenant, that final covenant, one that would never pass away. His covenant was with Noah. God promised never to destroy the world again in Genesis 9, thus preserving humanity for a particular reason, that he may spiritually redeem those that he's chosen. Later, God covenant with Abraham to make descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. So his descendants would be as numerous as that, and he would take them into a promised land. And then he would bless all nations through Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. At Sinai, under Moses' leadership, the Israelites obeyed God's law, and they agreed to this condi conditional covenantal terms, which he stipulated in Exodus 24.3. So this temporary institution of the law would help preserve the nation of Israel. It's to preserve God's chosen people until the fulfillment of Abraham's full covenant. God's covenant with David was an expansion of, David's of Abraham's covenant, specifying that the promised blessing to Abraham would be mediated through the royal line of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. And finally, Jesus Christ, the mediator of a superior covenant, in Hebrews 8, verse 6, came as the one through whom all the covenantal promises would be fulfilled. Even at the Last Supper, when Jesus was sitting there with his disciples, he took the cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you, Luke chapter 22, verse 20. And that's why the writer of Hebrews quotes extensively in this passage today from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. His point is to demonstrate from the Old Testament scriptures, because if he has validity, he has to go back to the Old Testament to prove that validity. And that's why he uses Jeremiah here, that the Old Testament scriptures themselves, that, at, that covenant under Moses was imperfect and required a replacement by a new covenant that was faultless, verse 7. Now, in context of the term faultless, it applies exclusively to the new covenant, not to the old. 
It does not imply, though, that the old covenant was sinful, but that it was insufficient. It did not meet God's requirements. It could not accomplish eternal salvation, nor could it bring about perfect righteousness. And in order to stand before a holy God, we must be perfectly righteous. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant would never be able to do that. It was inadequate for what it was, it was adequate for what it was meant to do, to serve as a standard and a reminder of, of our human sinfulness, Romans 7, verse 7, and also Hebrews 10, 3. And it was also used to hold back wickedness among God's people until the coming of the Messiah. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. However, as a means of bringing everlasting righteousness, it was insufficient. The old covenant could never bring eternal salvation. The new covenant of Israel and Judah would not be like that old covenant that was established at Sinai in Exodus, as Hebrews 8, verses 8 and 9 tells us. Indeed, it was to be a superior covenant. It couldn't be like that Mosaic covenant that was so easily broken over and over again. Using that quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, he quotes it in Hebrews 8, verses 12 through 10, or 10 through 12, and he gives at least four ways that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant, thus rendering the old covenant obsolete with its laws, its priesthood, its tabernacles, and its sacrifices. If you look at your bulletin insert today on the side, it says, Christ's covenant, new and never obsolete. And I've listed here four ways in which the new covenant is superior. The first way the new covenant is superior is the new covenant offers eternal motivation and power instead of external list of do's and don'ts. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. The old covenant with hundreds of commandments, statutes, and ordinances was addressed to the people that had a hard and unregenerate hearts. They were obligated to keep the stipulations of the covenant whether they felt like it or not. The motivation to obey were external consequences in the form of rewards for obedience or punishment for disobedience, Deuteronomy 28. In stark contrast, though, however, the new covenant involves an internal transformation by which the laws were written on the people's heart, not on tablets of stone. Submission to God's will and his will is a result of our coming to him in faith and love, not in fear and judgment. The second way that the new covenant is superior is the new covenant is based on a close relationship instead of a distant fear of God. Verse 10, God gave the commandments, its statutes, and its ordinance to the people of Israel from a place of a remote distance on top of Mount Sinai, through Moses, on tablets of stone, from the lips of the priest and the prophets. The people did not enjoy a close father-child relationship with God because of their constant disobedience of that old covenantal system. In contrast, the new covenant involves a new relationship of intimacy, of fellowship, of mutuality that's similar to what Moses had with God face-to-face -face on that mountain, a relationship with God that's described in Exodus 33:11 as one who speaks with a friend. The third way that the new covenant is superior is the new covenant provides confidence and assurance instead of insecurity and, and uncertainty. Verse 11, in the old covenant, covenantal system, some within that nation of Israel did know the Lord intimately and personally in a saving sense, as father and a friend. Others in Israel only knew him 
as a judge and a lawgiver who would smite them when they sinned. In other words, the situation under the Old Covenant was that of mixed company, both believers and unbelievers, all marked by that external sign of circumcision, though. Everyone was marked with circumcision, but only part of them were truly circumcised in the heart. Not everyone experienced that, as Deuteronomy 10.16 and Jeremiah 4.4 says. In contrast, the people to enter that new covenant was not by an external sign of circumcision, but by an inward transformation of a new birth. This means that each member of the new covenant community can have the confidence in our relationship with God, knowing him intimately and trusting and loving him truly. This brings us the assurance of salvation and security concerning our place in the family of God. We're a family of brothers and sisters with our one heavenly father. And the fourth way that the new covenant is superior to the old is the new covenant emphasizes forgiveness and mercy instead of failure and wrongdoing. Verse 12. The iniquities of sin that, without a sacrificial system, separated an unholy people, unholy guilty people with a perfect holy God. And it was no basis for an eternal relationship with God. And when we read through the history of Israel under the old covenant system, it seems that it wasn't that they took one step forward and two steps back. They took two steps forward and fell flat on their faces over and over again. Through the work of Christ, the recipients of his mercy and grace, their sins will never be brought to mind. The new covenant provides us freedom from that guilt because we're made perfect before God once and for all. Now, all these striking marks of superiority of the new covenant over the old one is clear and compelling. The new covenant renders the old covenant obsolete, it says in verse 13. Though the priesthood and the sacrificial systems were still in operation when the book of Hebrews was written, the inauguration of that new covenant through the coming of the Messiah meant that the old covenant was growing old. It was ready to disappear. And it would disappear in the most dramatic and violent way when the Roman army destroyed the temple and ended the sacrificial system during the Jewish revolt of 70 AD. If you look at the picture on this side of your bulletin insert, we, I've given a comparison between the Old Covenant, which was righteousness through the law, with the New Covenant, which was righteousness of Christ. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for that second covenant. There was no need for a second covenant if... The first covenant was sufficient, but it was insufficient. So we needed a new covenant through Christ. So what's the application of our passage today? And that's on your other side of your bulletin insert. First, I want to point out the picture at the body or bottom of that page there. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Tabernacle was to serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. It was made not only as a heavenly tabernacle, but if you study the tabernacle when it was being designed, it also points back to the Garden of Eden with its imagery of flowers and light. So the perfect garden that God originally created was pointing, the tabernacle was pointing back to that, but it was also pointing to the new tabernacle and that new global Eden that we'll all participate in one day. The good news is that the superior new covenant starkly contrasts the bad news and the sinfulness that was revealed by the law, revealed by that old covenant. 
The bad news is that every one of us has made a mess of our lives and fallen short of God's glorious standard. Romans chapter 3.23 says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. The law functioned like a mirror. When you look in the mirror, you see a reflection of yourself. And this is what the law was to do, to see what God required as perfect righteousness in order to be with him. It was only a mirror. It pointed out that, yes, we need something better than the law, than that old covenant. We needed something to make us perfect before God. The Old Testament could only, the Old Covenant could only condemn. It can't cleanse because only Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, can take away our sins that are revealed by the law like our faces are revealed by a mirror. That's a powerful superiority of the grace and the mercy of the new covenant, not on tablets of stone, but written on our hearts. The law can never accomplish that. Let's take a look another four ways in which that new covenant is superior to the old. And when we do this, ask yourselves, how is this applying to each of us personally? Well, the first way we can apply this to us is because the old covenant provides motivation and power, we can have the confidence of God's spirit within us to overcome our weaknesses and our inadequacies. We remember that trusting and obeying him alone isn't done on our own fleshly strength. God's work in us is to shape our desires to accomplish what he wills in our lives, not what we will. We're not asked to conjure up some sort of half-hearted obedience performed with a begrudging grin, saying, yeah, I'll obey you, God. But God himself produces this kind of fruit in our lives through an abiding Holy Spirit, which are listed in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. And what our lives should produce is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We love and obey him because we have transformed hearts, giving him the honor and the glory in our thanksgiving. The second way we can apply the new covenant to our lives is because the new covenant is based on a close relationship with God. We can embrace God as our heavenly father and fellowship with him as our ever-present friend. If you've ever felt afraid of God, and you've kept your distance from him, remember that he's your father. And he's the most loving, gentle father that we could ever have. And you're his child. And even when we stumble and fall, he wants to take us under his wing, to nurture us, to protect us, to restore us, to fellowship with him. And as a father, he may have to correct us at time at time when discipline us, but he will never smite us. As a friend, he encourages us and comforts us not to destroy or abandon us because there is no condemnation in those who belong to Christ Jesus. And the third way we can apply that new covenant to our lives is because the new covenant provides confidence and assurance that we can cast aside our doubts and uncertainty regarding our assurance of salvation and our place in God's family. If you've ever doubted on trembling knees whether you're worthy enough to be in his family, stop. None of us are worthy enough. But he's invited us into his family anyway. Not based on our worthiness, but based on the worthiness of his son, Jesus Christ. 
We are not mere visitors to God's house, but we're permanently members of God's family. We're not tourists of his kingdom, but we're joint heirs with the king, as told us in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. And fourthly, we can apply God's new covenant to our hearts because the new covenant emphasizes forgiveness and mercy, and we can always turn to him for both. If you're in the prison of guilt, God promises forgiveness by giving us the key to get out of that prison. He says, you don't need to belong in that, or don't belong in that prison of guilt. I've set you free. If you're ever stuck in the ups and downs of the cycle of sin and repentance, know that God's mercy is always there to pick you back up when you fall down, and we all will. To set you on solid ground, to motivate you to continue to struggle against that temptation and sin to be victorious. And there's three points here. Is that because mercy means that God withholds punishment that we would otherwise deserve. Forgiveness means that he sets us free from our guilt and the consequences of our sins. And grace means that he gives us what we don't deserve, which is spiritual blessings now and the promise of eternal life in that remade, that new global Eden for all of eternity that new tabernacle that we'll dwell in, that we'll worship God in, that heavenly tabernacle that was constructed by God himself. Yes, the old tabernacle was a picture, but strictly a picture. It wasn't the real tangible, that global Eden that we'll reside in. And that good news of the new covenant is what we went over today. And next week, we'll continue our adventure through the book of Hebrews as we focus on the reformation of our conscience. In a message titled, May I Speak to Your Conscience, Please? And it's taken from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. So if you have a chance, read that in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. Thank you for your love, your goodness, your mercy to us. Thank you for your blessings of each day. Thank you that we do have a better covenant, a superior covenant, a covenant that will last forever. It was provided by Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who brought this covenant to us, Father. Provided a sacrifice once and for all that we might gain access to your presence, Father, that we might come boldly before your throne to bring our request, our petitions, our thanksgivings, our praise. We thank you for this. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously. Lead with integrity and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.